Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. From David Zwerner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. It is fundamentally the desire to hold a mirror or shed light into certain uh, broad uh, notions of inequality in the context of the human being, regardless of any uh, racial difference. I'm Lucas Werner, and every episode features a conversation. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians, and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This episode's pairing, the artist Oscar Murillo, and the academic and editor Charles Henry Rowell. Born in Colombia, Oscar Murillo has consistently challenged the more established narratives around what it means to be an artist of color. You can see that in his multifaceted practice, but it's also true of the way he's traveled around the world, trying to encounter and explore as many different cultures as possible. He was shortlisted for the Turner Prize, and I think in large part, that's because of how he's challenged and opened up the conversation about identity and representation in the arts. Born in the Deep South, questions of identity and representation have often been on the mind of Charles Henry Rowell. He's the founder and editor of Callaloo, an award-winning literary magazine that presents the culture of the African diaspora from writers to visual artists and beyond. It's actually the longest continuously running African-American literary journal in the world. A few months ago, I heard from Oscar that Charles had been in touch with him, and I jumped at the opportunity to get them in conversation. What follows is part personal history and part history lesson. Charles and Oscar, thank you so much for coming and doing this conversation today. I thought that just by way of sort of an introduction, we could hear a little bit, Charles, about Kalalu and how you came to sort of start working on it. Kalalu focuses on the African diaspora, and it originally started focusing on the American South because we had no site at all for publication, even during the Black Arts Movement. So I said, those Northern people don't even want us in, the, in, the, in their journals, but we must start one here also, as well as the whites in the South did not want us in their journals. So I thought, okay, I will, I will ask the students at Southern University where I was teaching to help me with uh, finding money for the journal. So they went around with little tin cans. So when we first started, it was very, very small and folded, no perfect binding and focusing only on the South. So that's how we got started. But it, it sort of branched out from there into, into diaspora. Diaspora, right, exactly. I wanted to, the world to see how we would, we already had an aesthetic and they were talking about a black aesthetic. The black aesthetic for me was the music of the spirituals, the gospel, the blues, the black aesthetic was those sermons in the church and the rhetoric of the sermons in church. The black aesthetic for me was uh, those, just even to see those old women, uh, those women in the church fan, the way they had the, with, with an elegance or how they walked. All of that was part of the black aesthetic. I grew up in the black aesthetic every day of the week. That's one of the reasons that I started the journal. You know, Oscar, leading from that, you know, did you find when you first started working in London that there was real receptivity, that 
you had been already in London for a number of years, but when you were really studying at the Royal College, how did you feel about sort of the, the reception of what you were thinking about? In a way, this is, this is a little bit speculative, but I think in the context of, of how I grew up in Colombia, my generation, and, and I think my father's generation, and, and probably my grandfather's generation, there was no roots, really. I, I struggled to, to position myself in any kind of, in a way, defensive conversation about the African diaspora. Do you think that is the possibility of that, is the social class you come from, or were you so young in Colombia before you left that you did not notice that the aesthetic and diaspora aesthetic that I'm talking about is performed in dance, in music, in ways of speaking, in ways of being in the world? No, absolutely. I think I think there's been a landowner equals capital of source, cultural capital, uh, financial capital, primarily, and I think more importantly in the context of previous generations. And that leads to the destiny of future ge generations. And I think unlike, for example, you know, my family, we don't own any land or we, you know, at the very least, we don't own any important land that that warrant us a kind of an important status in society. Were there other people of African ancestry who own land? Well, not not in the region where I grew up. Oh. I mean, I think uh, we still very much uh, exist under a very oppressive, you know, system of of plantations, very much controlled by by one or or, or very few families that, are, of course, are not of African origin. They, they are of uh, European origin. And um, all of these people work, continue to work the land of the Europeans? Of course. In the American South, we had a lot of black people working the land of the European settlers. However, some few of us did acquire land. And that's, that's I think that's the, a remarkable, I think that's a remarkable difference and mm -hmm. jump. And I, and I think that's where uh, I, 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 I have a kind of struggle and I and I and I'm trying to find a reference point and, and a position within, particularly in the in the in the in the in the, in the current social moment of conversations about mm -hmm. blackness, for example, um, because my experience it's it's tremendously tremendously different. And I think it's a mixture of knowing, of course, in the context of my mother, who was a, a factory worker, and my father too was a factory worker. But in that in that mix, it wasn't simply just a, a racial situation. Racial, of course, yes, but also it had to do with the working classes, uh, where you had uh, in it, you know, an in, in indigenous population. The oppression is such that I don't think we have been able to get over our understanding of an oppressive existence. Meaning it hasn't even been crystallized the way it has in, in America, for example, that, that the, the black experience now is characterized so much by a, a clear struggle. I think, I think from a kind of let's say, poetic point of view, the way I, I like to describe this experience is that, you know, the, the Colombian, uh, the, the individual that's oppressed is only alive, really, because of the beauty of, of the natural surroundings of the country. From that environment, those people who are not in the ruling class, what kind of art exists? In, in terms of the visual arts, is zero. Um, and there, there are no, no, uh, how do you call them? Self-taught artists. 
we have self-taught artists. No, no, but but again, but again, this is this is so advanced that even this idea of of calling yourself a self-taught. They would never say they are, but they never they can't necessarily read and write. You know, I have this image of of being drowned, or, or people, or the or the oppressed. You know, being being drowned, and I'm really talking about the working class. Really, whether you're you're from a, an Afro diaspora, where you're you're from a, an indigenous, um, or even white, you know. That the oppression is such that when they submerge you into deep into the water and they leave you there, there is a kind of understanding that if they if they bring you back uh, to the surface just in just in time before you you become unconscious and die, so that you live in this in this kind of delirious limbo where you're you're simply s- subjected to a life of, of of pain, and this is where potentially art comes into the picture or culture, which is which is mostly music. You know, what do you think characterizes the experiences, the experiences of artists? It's sort of like an, an overview of what you think the experience of a diaspora artist is like. I would call it infinite variety because dance in the U.S. among African people, if we go back to early dance forms, they would not have the semblance of samba. They would not have the semblance of anything Jamaican, but we would know that there's something African in it. There was always a will toward resistance of whatever the Europeans it, it exerted on us. The resistance may not appear publicly, but the resistance is within the home, within the soul, within the church, and, and in fact, plotting and planning to do something to liberate yourself all the time. I, I want to, to discuss this idea of performativity mm. within blackness. Uh, and and I very often, even in conversations, I I say, look at my face. Isn't that enough? Are you talking about the kind of performing a role within an existing narrative? How are you understanding that particular word? Uh, a persistence on 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 creating a kind of frame for yourself as a as an artist as an artist of color, which is something that you have I, not wanted to do. I have a complete. Uh, desire to to eradicate period is that possible in this kind of international culture i don't think that's possible well i would like to i would like to, to and what is wrong with operating within that frame because out of that frame I think, I think that that isn't it's not about it being right or wrong uh, i think it's simply about if there is for example particularly in 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 the american context if there is a desire to achieve equality uh, of some sort, and, and and what is equality, and what are you measuring it against? Then I am simply just a human being. Uh, I'm saying, of course, there are problems. Of course, there there is racism, but I but my approach is to say I I want to be antagonistic and and I want to be confrontational with my own body because that's much more important. That is but the- once you do that, you're placing your body, that racialized body by the society itself, at the center. And that's what I'm saying. There's nothing wrong with saying I'm. If somebody calls you a black artist, that you're at the center, which means that they affirm the viewers, or your your how do you call them? The people who like your art, uh, uh, yes, your audience. They will accept who you are in that art. But the idea is, I think you know, if you think about it, you know, if you are a white male artist people will immediately engage with you as an artist first, right? Mm-hmm. You, because there mm-hmm. are no, you're part of, again, you're part of the, the majority, the hegemony, however you want to uh, frame it. But what that, the, the real benefit to that is that 
it's your expressive action that gets considered and judged as it is for what it is. But I think the African-American now wants to say this white art here, the same way they've been saying this black art here, because the white art is also racialized right. and also in, in a certain class. The black art is also the same thing. But it's just that uh, there's a failure to do what I'm advocating now to say this is white art. In my uh, personal experience, it was also in the image of the context in which I was growing up in. And, and I always advocate for the working class first and not the diaspora. For me, the working class is, is so much more pivotal than to, to have a conversation purely and simply, even though, um, you know, I clearly come from, from, a, from, a, from an Afro background. I mean, my mother's, you know, black and my father is mixed and, uh, and I have a broad family of people that are primarily Afro from both sides of my family. Which is true of most African-Americans, by the way, you know, uh, but we don't make the distinction the way you're making it. That You may like... not be representing it, but the eyes of the power will represent you as rep making uh, art in that from that stand of that uh, of that particular group. Yes. It's... No matter if you're talking That's about true. sunlight, he spoke about sunlight as a black man. Right. Do you hear the, the comment about his black sunlight? You know, that's how that operates. But that's here. fascinating because it's sort of like, how do you resist? How do you speak in a way about, speak whatever it is you want to speak about without being immediately classified or without being encouraged to classify yourself in the way that the dominant power structure wants to classify and understand you? I would like to say this. This may be my romanticizing my existence. I think Callaloo speaks for itself as art. Yes. Now, if you want to add race to it, add race to it. But these people are producing the kind of art that challenges any question about what the art is. It is important as, and jazz, I keep coming back to the idea of jazz. Jazz in its roots are terribly, terribly African-American. It started with African-American. It is replete. And look at what happened to it. It now dominates the whole unit, the whole globe. And these people didn't say, I'm going to write black music. No, they just performed out of their, out of, they just created out of their performing existence. And they didn't have to say, I'm, I apologize about being race or class. They created and they informed, they have shaped the world's music. These are black people no, no, of course. who are and, poor and black think, people. But, and I think, but that's, but I and, think that's and, really... And let me just say this, and that's all I ask as an editor of Kalanoo, just create the same way the jazz musicians, and you will have always the microphone in your hand yeah. because they were going to try to imitate yeah. you. Well, this is, this is why I have the microphone in my hand. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I think to, to add to that, I think it was important also to acknowledge is that hip-hop, for example, which mm -hmm. is another example, mm -hmm. um, that this is why I, I, I like to say, well, look at, look at my face. And, and, and that somehow, um, I think it is enough. As opposed to having to qualify yourself exactly. in some way. Right. And I think that you should never surrender yourself to being qualified, except look at my work. I think it's part of what you're saying is, is finding a language that moves people, using that as an entry point, mm -hmm. and then having it stand for whatever it stands for, whether and, it's an mm -hmm. experience like a jazz musician or. And it has to be a new language as the jazz musicians created a new language. Back to Kalalu for a, a, a second. 
it's one of the things I noticed when I started really digging in and reading issues is that you managed to create a, a publication that is very much about a specific experience, but the, 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 the content is defined really strictly on, on its quality. I don't think I did anything except to collect what I thought to be the best. And the best is, has to do with the quality of the performance on the page. And it doesn't have to apologize. It doesn't have to defend. You know, I'm looking for the best of the art from the diaspora. If it doesn't fit in terms of what I'm calling the best, and I guess you could ask the question, what do you mean by the best? Does it do what it is intended, intending in itself to do? I think you got me thinking, um, and I wanted to ask you a question in relation to travel and and the importance the importance of travel to have self-esteem and to have a kind of reference, reference point for the individual in relationship to the world and what that does in relation to how societies have indoctrinated themselves into having a kind of structure and framework. Even this idea of diaspora, it's, it's a vessel to, to meander and to navigate uh, a, a difference. It's really interesting what, what you said earlier when I asked you what characterizes the art of diaspora. You said infinitely varied. And of course, something one could say about your practice is that it is extremely varied. I mean, even the show that's currently open at The Shed is very varied. Yes. And I feel yes. that more and more, one of the things you've resisted is being pigeonholed into one specific thing. How has travel, we know that you move around a lot. Is it is it explicitly part of your practice, that, that travel? Or do you feel more it's just something that you have to do for yourself personally? My work is, I think first and foremost, is about a, a, a download of, of physical energy. And and I think this is where perhaps there can be a, a, a broader understanding as to why I want to eradicate any kind of framework around categorizations. And I think it has to do also with the lack of uh, historical uh, belonging, um, even in the context of being an Afro in, in Colombia, where you really, apart from, from of course, knowing uh, you know, a, a very vague history of my family, that I'm not subject uh, and I don't have these kind of heavy uh, uh, roots um, holding me down. What he has said about himself is what I could say about all of the people that I've been collecting in Kalamu. They are just performing themselves without worrying about what people will think about them. And in performing themselves, if they have a little, if they learned a little by traveling in Brazil about samba, samba, if they have one little samba beat in a poem, that is still the world. I want to change direction just a little bit. Um, I mean, I want to sort of talk a little bit about personal background. And so I'm curious, Charles, if you could tell us a little bit about how your aesthetics were formed, because of course, visual art has increasingly become part of Kalalu's story. Remember, my father was a farmer, but he took great pride in organizing the land. And it, it, which if, you, if I had been able to fly over in those days to see how those rows of cotton or corn, I would have said, oh my God, that's art. I think thinking back on it now, I knew that he was, he was an artist too. And he always was responsible for the vegetable garden, which is a small lot of plot of land that I could see. And, and he took great pride in laying out the rows of, of cabbages, the rows of collars, the rows of squash, a certain kind of way, or tomatoes, a certain kind of way. But then my mother was just the ultimate artist. 
with her flower gardens. My father was creating these lines for necessity. My mother was creating these lines with her flowers and her, the variegate, variegate, variegation, is that a word? The variegated patterns of, of the blossoms. You know, she didn't put straight rows of zinnias, straight rows of petunias. These things were mixed in a certain kind of way as, as, as one would find uh, any kind of abstract art because people would pass by our home and stop their cars to look at the organization. And then over from that was this orchard fruit orchard. They would stop and look at the, and ask my mother, would we be able to have an apple? Would we have a pear? These are whites. And my mother was gracious. She said, of course, you may get more than one. Somehow in high school, I heard about Mr. Johnson, and I can't even remember his first name, but he taught me, my parents allowed me to go into the city to take lessons free from Mr. Johnson on drawing and watercolor. And I said, oh, I'm, I have it good. My friends are all going to have to study, have to run off to play baseball, football. They get hurt. I could just do what I wanted to do, the beautiful things. I, I, and then when I went off to college, I did not go to study art. I was going to study horticulture and landscaping, which is what my mother was doing all the time, you know. So, But then I discovered that botany was a challenge for me, and that numbers were a challenge to me. I made C's in bad. I made B's in botany. And the botany thing was a thing that signaled to me, I'd better leave this alone because I can't, if I can make only B's in botany, what would I do when I get to plant pathology and agronomy? I would fail at those. So I took the easy way. I was making A's in English, so I turned to English <laughs> and literature. So that that's that's how I got that direction. But it it doing the English and, and and but I was looking at beauty beauty when I was reading the poems when I was reading the novels. Well, you described to me being in graduate school, oh, yes. studying Beowulf, oh, yes. oh, and yes. seeing it being the '60s and seeing things happening in Alabama yes. where you were oh, from. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> this is a moment when I was at Ohio State in graduate school. That must have been the '60s, obviously, and. I was taking this course. I started out specializing in Old English. This is before Chaucer. <laughs> this is Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> where you had Beowulf. And so I was studying the original language, the Anglo-Saxon, because I'd had a course, a quarter, in, in just Anglo-Saxon grammar and prose. And then next semester, I had this course in Old English minor poems, uh, you know, Dream of the Rude, uh, and, and other small poems like that. But then the piece de resistance was, of course, in Beowulf. And there were three of us in the Beowulf class. Uh, one guy from Yale who was very snooty. And I, that's why I wanted to go there and learn how to be snooty. We met daily. <laughs> and so I'd have to go home. But that one morning, before I left my apartment, I knew I had to see what was going on in television. So I flicked it on. I had about an hour to do that and get to class too. I lived across the street from the university. That morning, I got this image of these people being beaten by these policemen as they were crossing the Pettis, uh, Pettis Bridge over in Alabama, in Selma, walking overhead to Montgomery. I knew about the Civil Rights March, but I'd never seen this beating and killing of people. And I was in such shock. And here I am all headed to a class in Beowulf, <laughs> translating old English. And what I, I asked the question, 
that the uh, that the bishop of Rome asked the uh, the people he had sent off to England to Christianize the the, the Celtic people. Uh, he asked, "What has Ingel to do with Christ?" He was asking, "Why are they saving these manuscripts with these this Beowulf stuff in it that has nothing to do with Christianity?" So I asked myself the same question in a, with a different way. What has my studying Beowulf to do with going home where I knew I had to return to the South? That's what those old women in the church told me. Honey, you're going to have to come back here and help us out. You got to come back and work for the community. And I knew that I would have to do that to, it, it, by teaching in an, in an all-black school, all-black university. So I turned to away from Old English after that semester, but I stayed that course. I still took a few courses in there. But I had nothing to turn to because there was no African-American classes. I never took classes in African-American literature. That was a new sort of thing. But I it took courses in American literature. And if they were 20th century, I would, I would, I would tell my professor, I'm going to write on a black writer. I'm going to write on either, either Ralph Ellison or I'm going to write on Baraka's Dutchman or I'm going to write on Gwendolyn Brooks's poetry. So that's what I did. That's how I got in, involved in African-American literature. Uh, Oscar, you know, when you mentioned your mother, what was that in reference to in your own childhood that you learned from that relationship? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think, again, the land has to do, the land becomes fundamental, whereby Charles, your family uh, were or are a landowning family. And therefore, even in the context of the 50s, the 40s or uh, the 60s, you uh, as a family are you're living off the land and therefore you have a kind of freedom to exist, even if it's limited, even if there there are very clearly there were uh, racial issues. And in fact, you know, you just explained that we were not and we are not landowning family, whereby therefore when I say, well, how do I know that that I have a kind of an alliance to my mother in, in a kind of an aesthetic, it's really much more in a, in a, in a, in a totally unrealized way because um, my mother couldn't have a garden or couldn't uh, even have the time because she worked, you know, 12 hours a day in a factory, uh, six days a week. So there was no even a, a way to explore what those intricate moments of having that relationship could have been. Um, I just know that, uh, that I think probably the only example of that was when my mother uh, went to her tailor friend to get her dresses done um, and she had a kind of style uh, so I know that she was interested in in aesthetics but there was no uh, beyond that and also she was my mother was a was a great dancer too but effectively she was a maid and she worked as a factory worker um, so there was no way to really explore the, um, the self. She didn't have a way to explore the self, even if it was through, you know, a garden or sewing or there was no time for that. She had one day off. She had Sunday off and other she, six days she, a week. She or... had Sunday off, but then, you know, you have a family. Yeah. I mean, I'm curious what you think about that because like when you describe your mother, you're basically describing a woman who never had a real chance for self-expression because of extreme economic pressure. And, you know, you're talking about a family that had to totally ingratiate yourself to a dominant white class mm -hmm. in order to retain a certain mm -hmm. amount exactly. of economic freedom. But My parents. Your parents. And I was the, warring against the, right. the subjugation. Yeah, that exactly. was your subversive part, like, yes. Yes. moment. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But let me just say this to you. When my parents were not peculiar. There were other black people throughout the South who owned land. 
and who, who were self-sufficient in certain ways and who had to fight and protect themselves from the Klan. But so happened on the road where we lived, my father had established certain relationships with the whites on that road. And the other family was was a Bradford family. That last name was Bradford. They also established a relationship with the other white people. So no Klansmen ever came down the road where we were because I think my father would have said, would have called these other the white farmers and say, you know, you're going to have to keep them away. The same with my grandfather, his father. My grandfather created a posse when the Klan came and drove them away. Now, I don't, I don't, under, I don't know how Edmund Rowell, who is my great-grandfather, my, yes, my father's grandfather, I don't know how he acquired land, but it was acquired shortly after emancipation. I need to go to the county records to figure that out. His name was Edmund Rowell. His wife was Rachel Rowell. And so all these names, uh, so that's what happened. And how they got the name Rowell, I assume that was a slave master with the last name Rowell. Somewhere. Not that necessarily slave master. It could have been just, I like the name Rowell. Maybe one of the last things I was hoping <laughs> you would talk about, Charles, is um, are some of these subversive? I mean, you talked about being in a big family of eight siblings, but what were some of the kind of indications early on that maybe you weren't going to fit into the context that existed? Well, I think it was came from my public speaking in church because the people said to my mother, Miss Jessie, her well, first name was Jessie, <laughs> you know, Miss Jessie, that boy's going to be a preacher. And another woman would say, no, he's going to be a fessor, meaning professor. And then, so I didn't know what they were talking about. Then my first grade teacher would come and talk to my mother about what she should do with my father to push me forward. I didn't know what they were talking about. I never knew until much later. That's what they were doing to propel me on. And nobody gave me a lecture about it. They just said, we'll listen to what he says, perhaps, and we'll support it. So I, I was supported fully uh, to go off to college. We were, my father took me in the city to his danger, to his peril. He took me with him in the city, and he had. To, my mother told me to go by a particular store to buy something. And I noticed this little clerk, always a young white clerk, tossed the money at my father. I said, why are you throwing that money at him? My father grabbed my arm. She looked at him. She, I said, I don't understand why you're doing it. You're just as cheap and tacky. My father dragged me out of the store. <laughs> And so he said, Amazing. don't you ever do that again. You're going to get me killed if you not you. So I listened. My father would sell vegetables in the black community. You know, we had produce, set gardens, all kinds of vegetables. He'd take it into the city and, and throughout the black community. And he'd stop and chat with the people. And they would say, he would say, this is my baby son. I mean, the youngest child, my son. This is Master Charles Henry, of which I thought all these years, He's giving me this title. He doesn't mean slave master now. Master Charles Henry. I discovered what that meant later years by studying Middle English, uh, 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 Old English, Middle English, and then finally the Renaissance and the royal families or the upper classes. They would call the special one or the youngest one master, a young man as master. And in church, I was called Master Charles Henry. But the other boys were not called Master Charles Henry. So that was a pushing. I never developed an ego about it. The ego is coming now in my old age. I was always Master Charles Henry. <laughs> <laughs> which is, which is, I think, just to add, I think there was in, this innate uh, uh, spiritual feeling of injustice mm -hmm. that you felt. Mm -hmm. uh, that it, that it wasn't even, I think it preceded even your, your education. 
I knew something was wrong. And, and maybe I, I ought to explain myself better when, when the, the courage uh, to repel the injustice, the courage to, to, to remove the, 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 the oppressive shackles was, was much more stronger uh, because there was a very clear uh, source of uh, supremacy and power and oppression. Um, mm, interesting. And and this is what I mean about this kind of parallel didactic mm. relationship. In the American context, you mean? In the American context. The suprematist kind of always announced itself. And, and you know, and this is who we are. We're here. We're pressing you. And there is this kind of relationship that that existed or exists, and, and and that's kind of what I mean, whiteness. And I think that this is where, even though I, ha I have solidarity and I sympathize, I also acknowledge that um, I come from a totally different context. Mm. And, and I, even mm. with my, uh, you know, slight provocative discourse sometimes, it's really not to, to uh, dismiss or to be ignorant but really for there to be an acknowledgement that there, there are the, different conversations. There are different conversations yeah. that need to be uh, acknowledged. You know, how does, it's a strange question maybe, but how does success play into your vision of yourself, um, it, it, you know, into this vision of solidarity? Your own success in a capitalist system, of course, gives you leverage and power. And are there ways to take advantage of that? Does that make you uncomfortable? Sort of, is it something that, you have to contend with no. I think I think absolutely. I think what that does it, it. I mean, it's something that I'm that I'm beginning to handle. I think it's the the that leverage. It's it's something that I think as I be, continue to manage my practice, uh, I I would I would uh, insert that that leverage to to attain certain kind of discourses and to 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 um, discuss certain certain things that I that I strongly believe. It is fundamentally, I'll say, with the desire to hold a mirror uh, or, or, or shed light into certain, um, or ideally into a, a very uh, broad uh, uh, notions of inequality in the context of the human being, just, you know, regardless of, of uh, any uh, racial difference. I want to thank you guys both for doing this this afternoon. Thank you, Charles, and thank you, Oscar. Uh, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much. And it's, it's a pleasure meeting both of you and coming out of the wilderness, which is the South, to say hello to you in the city of New York. I'm still in the wilderness. <laughs> thank, thank you for the history lesson, Charles. It's really uh, a real honor to be here with you. Okay. Thank you. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time. <laughs>